Yeah, so what did you think of the Disney teen musical classic, Zombies 2? Are you sure what I watched was a Disney film? Which teenage pop artist went underwater and watched a zombie fight a fucking shark? Uh, yeah, and that's the one where they're all singing, right? You you found the right movie? There was no singing. There was, a lot, there was some eyeball trauma, but there was no singing in my movie. <laughs> cool, well, uh, sounds right, so let's just roll with it. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the cowardly co-host Derek, and my movie Monster Boy co-host Aaron, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as we discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Uh, the train keeps on rolling this summer with Dead Boy Summer. Dead Boy Summer. Here we are, gonna be a bunch of teenage zombies, yeah, gonna fucking have a good summer. I like how there's a two, meaning there was a zombies musical one (laughs) Disney original movie, so it was good enough to get a sequel. Yeah, it's not quite as inextricable as the two that is in the title of the movie we're going to be discussing, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. Well, and I wonder if it's on par with Halloween Town, because that's a fucking classic as far as Disney Channel original movies go, but it also spawned a million sequels, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this week, it's just me and Aaron. Peek behind the curtain, we kind of had uh, Call an Audible here. The original companion movie we were going to do with Dawn of the Dead wasn't going to be Zombie 2, a.k.a. Zombie, directed by Fulci. Uh, It was a different movie, which uh, we will probably explore in the near future with the guests we were supposed to have on. So yeah, this week we're going to discuss Lucio Fulci's Zombie 2, a.k.a. Zombie, from 1979. But like usual, uh, we're going to start off with recommendations. For those of you who are just joining us on this podcast, our recommendation section is where Aaron and I discuss other horror media we've consumed lately, pun intended, be it other movies, video games, TV shows, comics, etc. So with that, Aaron, have you been getting into any horror lately? Uh, yes, but no, I haven't had a whole lot of time to check out horror, so I really only have one recommendation. It is a tangential recommendation simply because it is a kung fu movie first, horror movie second. (laughs) You have my attention. Yes, so I checked out Human Lanterns from 1982, directed by Chung Sun. This is a kung fu slasher movie that was honestly rad as fuck. So the movie stars Tony Liu from Bruce Lee's Way of the Dragon, Fist of Fury, Big Boss, and Lee Lo, who was in Five Fingers of Death and 36 Chamber of Shaolin. The movie is about two rival martial arts masters who also want to have the biggest, most fancy lanterns in the annual lantern festival. Okay. One of these guys goes to a lantern maker in town who turns out 
out to be one of his old rivals and basically schemes to like make the greatest lantern turns out dun 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 this guy is up to some dark evil happenings to make his lanterns and let's just say they're made out of humans so uh yeah it's a fun time and it's really fucking ridiculous the main slasher villain is a cross between a skeleton yeti and a ninja (laughs) yeah that's what i'm looking at it's pretty fucking awesome i google imaged it and i this goofy fucker it looks almost like a lion's mane around a skull yeah is it supposed to be like an oni or something was summoned by the lantern i'm guessing or not necessarily and and turns out there is actually nothing supernatural going on Uh, okay this is strictly a like serial killer slasher type movie i will say as a disclaimer there is definitely some sexual violence and violence towards women in the thing um which you know par for the course for most slasher movies of the era but yeah this guy is essentially skinning people and turning them into fancy ornate lanterns did this movie come out of hong kong or yes this is a shaw studios movie okay so it's been released by 88 films which is a uk imprint but it is available in u.s region a so that is definitely something you can pick up for pretty cheap i've noticed that lately with your recommendations you've tapped this subgenre of horror kung fu movies yes because this is not your first one that you recommended in recent memory yeah there's a fucking lot because it turns out horror is fucking popular everywhere so yeah there were definitely a bunch made back in the day but yeah this is like over the top ridiculous lots of crazy weapons flying around and assassins and double crossing but then there's lots of goofy inextricable things like one of the guys is seeing a well-known prostitute in the village and she gets invited to a party in order to like have him lose face you know and be embarrassed and just all these weird social things kind of back and forth but then yeah there's like this dude who dresses up like a monkey yeti skeleton ninja and literally like dances around and kung fu's people's faces in uh so it was a lot of fucking fun this would be a ridiculous one to see with a crowd so yeah i highly highly fucking enjoyed it so yeah that's human lanterns from 1982 i am not sure that it's on any kind of streaming but you could pick it up for pretty cheap off amazon um again it's from 88 films so that is certainly worth checking out they have a lot of other kung fu horror stuff as well so that is all i've got for this episode what have you got so i have a chunk of recommendations and a couple of them i think you'll be able to talk about too especially this first one i'm gonna bring up so i have a movie two albums and two comics okay let's start with this movie so zombie 2 is directed by lucio fulci I watched another Fulci movie, actually, just on a whim. Hell yeah. And this one is a pretty fucking regressive, dangerous-ass movie. I watched let me, The New York Ripper. Okay, I was literally about to say, let yeah. me guess, New York Ripper? Yep. New York Ripper, of course. From 1982. <laughs> and it's interesting to start off this discussion about it. Uh, a lot of the stuff I was seeing like back and forth online were people debating on, is this fully a giallo movie? Is this fully a slasher movie? Or is this a bit of both? I would argue it's 
it's a bit of both. I'd say it's a bit of both because yeah. it's kind of a perfect combination of the Italian giallo story tropes, but with the trappings of an American slasher movie. So yeah. I feel like it's firmly both. And let me start off up top. Uh, a lot of trigger warnings for this movie. Yeah. Going back to like what you just said on your recommendation, violence against women, especially in sexually questionable positions all over this movie, because it is about a, a ripper, a New York serial killer, like in the height of his killings, killing women. It doesn't hold back. And I don't know what it is with Italian style horror, like between the cannibal movies and Giallo movies and like the movie we're discussing today and the other Italian movies we've done in the past. They're fucking brutal and they don't shy away from being transgressive as fuck and controversial even. And New York Ripper, like somehow it felt even more exploitative than Maniac. This is a kind of a good companion movie with Maniac, I would say, because there's very similar things going on here. Yeah. New York Ripper very much, maybe even arguably more than Maniac, shows the grim and grime nature of New York City in the early 80s and like how filled with trash, all this crime ridden areas. And it was really like a city of sin in a lot of ways. And I feel like the New York Ripper shows that side of New York a lot more than even Maniac did. The Giallo trappings are there in that sometimes there's almost hyper realistic settings that become surreal. Yeah. There's a lot of red. There's a lot of moments of like <laughs> a lot of neon, people in yeah. dark rooms with neon red in the background. There are random moments where you're following a character who you think is kind of important to the story and in a way they kind of are. But then they're just tangentially killed off unceremoniously even. There's a lot of weird themes of sexuality. I mean, at one point, again, trigger warnings, a woman gets fucking like sexually assaulted with a foot like a guy's foot he starts playing footsie with her and like starts basically masturbating her with his foot under a table shit like that's going on in this movie yeah and it's stuff that's so teetering on the edge of like is this supposed to be campy and funny because it doesn't feel that way you know it's it's just kind of right on that edge of i'm not sure what they're going for yeah one of the more interesting moments where you're like not sure whether this is campy or whether this is kind of more sadistic and it felt more sadistic to me but I'm not spoiling anything because this is pretty much the beginning of the movie. The serial killer, you see from their point of view, kind of in the style of Friday the 13th and all that, and you see like just their hand. That's another giallo thing from what I understand, right, Aaron? Yes. They talk like a duck, like think a Donald Duck's like style voice. <laughs> yeah. And like, like that kind of weird shit. Speaking, what do you want? To dedicate a killing to you. <laughs> Gonna sacrifice a woman just for you. Like the idea? The only thing I'd like, I'd really like, is to meet you face to face. That'll happen sooner or later, but you'll have to recognize me. Yeah, and you don't find out who the killer is towards the end, which you can kind of see it coming. But uh, one thing I did appreciate, actually, is one of the characters who is introduced who you think is just going to kind of be like, not necessarily even the final girl, but the final victim that's going to lead to the killer's downfall. She's actually the one who figures shit out before, like, the detective does, I feel like. Yeah. Her character actually had a pretty good arc, I feel like, and I don't want to give away who that is, just in case someone goes to watch it, because then you'll figure out who the killer is pretty quickly. 
but yeah, and like again, there's what is it? A Fulci and fucking eyeball trauma. There's a whole scene <laughs> where like a guy is taking a razor, cuts a woman's eye, and you watch the whole thing happen, like cutting her eye out. Yeah, we'll get into this, you know, when we're talking about the movie in a minute, but I am convinced that at some point growing up, he had like some kind of fucking near eyeball trauma, like kind of something happened to him when he was a kid that like fucked him up for life. Yeah, something too that I thought was interesting was I was reading a little bit about the production and everything. Fulci was saying that this was kind of supposed to be his tribute to Hitchcock, of all things. Yeah. Stating that there was going to be an interesting plot, a lot of violence, and some sexuality as well, which there's a lot of sexuality. Yeah. And I mean, we talked about this before when we covered Psycho, but it does feel like a very knockoff story of something that's Hitchcock, but it's very much all the same kind of dirt that he was wanting to kind of wallow in and just knew that he couldn't get away with. Yeah. It's just a lot of the same stuff that he hints at and alludes to, but just never did show explicitly. It does feel like if Hitchcock could have made this movie in the 80s like Fulci did, he would have made something similar to this. Also, too, though, even though it's not necessarily like an original idea, it's very much Fulci, like the style of of this entire movie. And it's actually compared to The Beyond and even this movie, Zombie 2, New York Ripper, I feel like, was even more straightforward than like usual giallo and Italian horror that we've covered in the past. Again, there was a little bit of confusion, maybe like during a, a scene where you're not sure if it's a dream or not. And then another scene where you're like following a woman who you think is going to be an important character. You witness her go about her day to day and like having this weird open sexual relationship with her husband. And then there's even this moment of another guy who could possibly be the killer. So there's all this stuff that's happening around this movie, but it did feel like it was pretty straightforward all things considered. And I honestly, like, I dug the reveal and I dug the reasons why the killer was acting out the way they were. I don't know. It, it's a good movie. I, I don't know about you, Aaron, but I could see us down the line returning to and doing a full episode on. Um, and it would be fun to, like, stretch that out into a full episode and revisit this. Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot to talk about, especially just from the standpoint of the transgressive nature of it and things like that. I mean, there's a conversation to be had, good or bad, for sure. And I'm pretty sure it is on our list somewhere down the line yeah but yeah new york ripper again if you're gonna watch it just be wary of trigger warnings there's a lot of violence especially towards women some of the violence is sexual in nature so yeah new york ripper from 1982 also done by fulci the next two recommendations i have are music they kind of go a little bit hand in hand they're both experimental rock experimental metal funk even Let's start with the one that's less accessible. I have been this week listening for whatever reason to the self-titled album Mr. Bungle by Mr. Bungle, the experimental rock group that's made of, who is it, like Mike Patton from Faith No More. I think Dave Lombardo is in it. They're kind of like a super group a little bit. They're a little bit hard to describe, especially their later albums. Mr. Bungle is a little more of like an experimental metal album with actual circus music of all things. It's almost like anti-music in a way it's very avant-garde i would say but yeah the reason why i kind of bring that up as a horror recommendation is imagine you died and went to hell and you were stuck on the floor of hell that was satan's carnival the music that would be playing would be this fucking album (laughs) especially like the first track quote unquote which was originally titled travolta and they had to change it because of lawsuits and stuff from mr travolta uh there was a bit of controversy around that but quote unquote is the name of the track it's the first track on there 
and also Carousel. Those are like the two heaviest carnival music in the background of some weird as fuck metal. I added them both to our Spotify music playlist. But yeah, like Mr. Bungle is kind of great, though. Like as weird as it is, as kind of hard to listen to as it can sometimes be. There's always more I discover every time I listen through this album. Yeah, the lyrics at first do sound like nonsense, but almost along the same lines of Acid Bath. I feel like there's more to it than you realize. And of course, being like Mike Patton, because I think Faith No More deals a lot with this too. They don't shy away from like subjects of pornography and violence. And again, I didn't realize this until I read about it afterwards and then I heard it throughout the album. They throw in quotes from David Lynch's Blue Velvet through this album. <sighs> Yeah, there's all kinds of weird little samples and stuff throughout their work. Yeah, yeah and with it being kind of like circusy music, there's even a little bit of ska influence in this, which is weird. And there are other two albums that I really like, uh, Disco Volante and California, don't really ever return to like the ska circus music style. I feel like it's only in this album. A lot of people kind of quote those two other albums as better, but this is my personal favorite, their self-titled one, because of this like dark carnival nature it has to it. If you have the patience, and you are of a bit of a music head that kind of likes stuff that's a little bit more off the beaten path, um, which I know a lot of my music recommendations on our podcast are this. But again, here's another one. Mr. Bungle came out in 1991. Yeah, I'm definitely a Mike Patton fan. Fucking love Tomahawk. I love some of his weird solo shit. I totally forgot he's in Tomahawk. His score for The Place Beyond the Pines, I think, is better than that movie is. Yeah, so like, I, I definitely dig a lot of his stuff. Yeah. He's one of those guys, too, that's a workaholic when it comes to music he is always in all kinds of projects i feel like and he just has an interesting outlook on music itself and the idea of what a rock star should be like he's very against the grain against all of that it's a little bit almost like tim and eric a rock star this weird like almost nonsensical dark anti-humor yeah i mean he's definitely a provocateur for sure and kind of always has been this album specifically is a good example of that so yeah if you're interested check that out now here's one that I think is a bit more accessible. It's still a little bit avant-garde. It's also funk rock, funk metal. And it's an album by a band that's pretty well known, but I would argue that this album specifically is overlooked in their discography. This album came out in 2011. It is called Green Nagahide by Primus. Yeah. I feel like this is more of a horror-adjacent recommendation because it's not necessarily like a horrific album. There are moments of darkness in this album Album, I will say, like most Primus albums have a little bit of that. Eternal Consumption Engine and Jilly's on Smack and Extinction Burst and all that. There are those tracks that are a little bit darker, a little bit more strange to listen to. Here in the USA. 
also some just fucking jams on here like i love last salmon man i love tragedies a coming lee van cleef is a great song it's possibly one of my favorite primus songs ever not just because the song is great but the good the bad and the ugly is in my top 10 movies of all time and i feel like lee van cleef does get overlooked a lot in westerns yeah <laughs> even though he was in a fucking lot of good ones yeah. he was in a lot of good ones yeah he's not the clint eastwood yeah he's on and that's what the song actually like talks about moments too of just like a critique of Americana and advertisement throughout this album. I read a review, I don't know if it was a I think it was a user review somewhere on Rate Your Music and it was a good point they made. It's like listening to a SpongeBob SquarePants soundtrack but a little bit darker than that, I would say, and that's kind of like what this album is. It's a good balance between old Primus and like the newer sound that they've been kind of going with. And again, there's a lot of funk metal of fuck rock in this album. I think it's overlooked just because so many people go back to uh, their other stuff like Sailing the Seas of Cheese and and those earlier albums of theirs. But yeah, I thought this was a solid one. I remember, Aaron, you and I saw Primus, I think in 2013 back in New Orleans. So they were still a little bit fresh off this album. And I remember they played a good bit of this album and it all hit really well. But yeah, if you're looking to kind of dip your toes into more avant-garde metal and not necessarily go off the deep end like with Mr. Bungle. Primus is a good starting point and I would argue that this album is underappreciated as far as Primus albums go. Yeah, that's kind of all I have to say about it unless you have anything else to add. Nah, this is definitely one of their more interesting, like you said, slightly darker albums. You know, a lot of their stuff has like a weird edge to it and I get that, man, Primus is one of those bands that is definitely an acquired taste, you know, and this album specifically is definitely like a for the fans kind of thing but it's interesting it's definitely interesting like if you know kind of all their main hits check this one out because there is some good shit on this one for sure frizzle fry is the other album i think as far as like their darker quote-unquote albums go and this album really does feel like it's a bridge between like frizzle fry and everything they put out after this album which i'll admit i'm not a huge fan of the newer primus stuff some of it is really good though but uh, i do think that with it being like caught in the middle like a lot of people kind of turn to this album as being like oh this was the start of the downfall of primus's sound and I, I would push back against that i would say that like this album actually harkens back to the older days of primus but with a more modern sound attached to it yeah i don't know i just i really dig this album We've said it multiple times. It's Primus, so it's a bit strange. I think it's a solid recommendation. So check out Green Naga Hide by Primus. 
Um, the last two recommendations I have, both of them are comics. These two actually kind of go hand in hand because both of them have a lot of queer subtext to them, or not even subtext, just outright queer love story to them. They're both five-issue miniseries. One was put out by Image. The other was put out by Boom Studios, both fairly re- recently within the last year or two. I'll start with the, the first one that was put out by Image and literally just wrapped up as of a couple weeks ago, and that's a comic miniseries called Rain by Joe Hill, Ah, Stephen King's son. Rain follows two women who are in a relationship, and on just a normal day in Colorado, I believe they're in Boulder, Colorado, a storm appears, and instead of raining rain, it rains down crystal splinters that just impale anybody and anything living that's caught in the rain. And this all happens in the first issue, so I'm not giving away too much. Honeysuckle, who is the main character, her girlfriend, Yolanda, gets caught in the rain and killed immediately. It's brutal. Just imagine thousands of spikes raining down on you, impaling every part of your body. That's kind of the setup of the comic, and it kind of goes off from there. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty gory. The art doesn't shy away from showing people and animals who get caught in the crystal rain doesn't shy away from showing you what happens to them throughout the series it follows honeysuckle traveling to i believe it's denver to go to yolanda's father to let her know what happened it's basically the apocalypse happening in real time as all this is happening this crystal rain is apparently happening everywhere and the u.s government is trying to like keep things together but people are dying everywhere there's looting it kind of takes a little bit of a last of us style turn with her making this journey across the highways trying to dodge the rain trying to dodge suicidal cults trying to dodge prisoners who have escaped from a work detail taking advantage of the chaos and it's an interesting story it's a really tragic love story because it starts with one of them being killed off and then it goes with the other one trying to alert their parent as to what happened and the first four issues are great here's why it's a mixed bag for me I thought it should have ended at issue four. I thought issue four had a good ending, but it goes on one more issue and it kind of gives away the origin of what's going on. Okay, sure. There's just too much info. Yeah, I don't care. I did not care about like what was causing this. It almost felt like it was all ham fisted into issue five. It almost felt like an editor told Joe Hill, like, no, you need to explain this, make another issue. But at the same time, it also feels like this is what he intended anyway. But like, I kind of hated it. I kind of hated the explanation as to what's causing this. It felt a little tropey and a little kind of tired. And I dug the characters who were still alive. Like I dug where they were left off at at the end of issue four. Just the ending didn't do the rest of the series justice to me. I don't know, but I could be wrong. I could be in the minority about that. So if you really enjoy this series, let me know like what you thought of issue five. And if you haven't read the series and want to, I do recommend it because it's an interesting as fuck premise. I didn't like the final issue. I didn't like how it like, sure. bent over backwards to explain it. Now, are they going to do, is this an ongoing series and the first volume is just done? No. So maybe like the road bump that you hit with the fifth issue maybe gets smoothed out later or is it done? So I think this is done because it was a mini series, one of five, two of five, etc. But he left the ending open for there to be a, a sequel series. And I could see him going back to this because I really do like the main character, Honeysuckle, and the other character that's with her by the end. I don't want to give away who that is. So I would like to continue seeing their journey. I do dig. It's an apocalypse we haven't seen before. Like the yeah. idea of just anytime it rains, we're all fucked, basically, because it just rains spikes now. Like 
and that like what does that do to the climate what does that do to the ecosystem because every time it rains it's just gonna murder any animal it would be interesting to explore that a little bit more throughout the world so yeah i could see him returning to this but otherwise it's it's solid i enjoyed the the miniseries i just wish it ended at issue four yeah gotcha so the second comic I wanted to bring up in my final recommendation is another five-issue miniseries. Came out of Boom Studios. Another horror story that has some queer subtext to it. That's an aspect of the story. This one is called Eat the Rich. Gotcha. It is yeah. by Hugo Award-winning author Sarah Gailey and artist Pius Bach. I liked this a lot more. This was one of the better miniseries I've read in a while, to be honest with you. So the premise is after they graduate law school, this girl named Joey plans to spend the summer with her boyfriend, Aster, in this place called Crestfall Bluffs. And Aster's family is super wealthy, super rich. These are the high elite people. Like It's insinuated that Crestfall Bluffs is a town or a neighborhood that is for the elite of the elite, politicians, successful lawyers, etc. all like live here. They're all hyper rich. Joey is trying to like break into this world with her boyfriend and try not to come off as a fake or she starts off wanting to be accepted in the hyper elite, even though like she's not necessarily comfortable with what that means. And all, all in the first issue, they go to a party and the party is a roast of one of the helpers, one of the servants for one of the families. And they're actually roasting the servant as the their retirement and it's really weird and uncomfortable she basically like kind of leaves the party for a second and walks on the beach and then she witnesses a bunch of the rich adults murder said servant and cannibalize them and it kind of goes from there and you kind of find out every so often they are killing the servants and the cooks and, and gardeners and everyone who like works for them and cannibalizing them all the rich people are doing this what the fuck's going on here I don't want to say much more than that it goes from there and like you find out why this is happening. So it has a lot of commentary, of course, on the rich, a lot of commentary on capitalism, what it does to people who are kind of in lower socioeconomic situations, how the rich take advantage of that, and how sometimes even when the rich think they're helping, they're actually all they're doing is quote unquote cannibalizing the poor and feeding the yeah. machine. None of this is subtext. It's all very much on the page. It's taking the actual metaphors and making them yeah. manifest Yeah, for the sake of horror. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a lot like they live. It's not shying away of what it's talking about. But what really makes a story pop is it goes to places that are what's that horror movie like society? Yeah, that sounds very similar, but just without the cannibalism angle, yeah. Yeah, so now I know society has to deal with them actually being like... Uh, spoiler for society, I guess. But Eat the Rich, I will say, doesn't go into any like sci-fi routes like that, which I appreciated. But it has elements of like society. By the end, especially the last issue, felt so much like The Perfection, the movie we just covered with featuring X podcast. Sure. It, the dynamic between the two female leads is very much similar to the dynamic between the two female leads and The Perfection. It has such a fuck yeah ending. I highly recommend this. Definitely, Aaron, I would recommend 
recommend this to not only you, but Heather. I think Heather would dig the shit out of this. So yeah, Eat the Rich was a fucking fun ride. Great horror miniseries, again, by Sarah Gailey. Fantastic stuff. Have you read this at all? Uh, No, I have that on my short list. I haven't started reading it yet, but uh, I know of this one for sure. I would love to see this one turned into a movie, to be honest with you. I think this would make a great horror movie. (laughs) Based on the premise, it might be hard to pull that off and get away with the rating, you know, but I'm, you know, I don't know. Nowadays in the world of streaming where you can just dump stuff and you don't have to go through the MPAA, I've seen a lot of crazy shit lately. You think them killing and cannibalizing people is gonna, that's gonna be too brutal for audiences nowadays after all the shit we've gone through? I think explicitly showing the cannibalism is where the taboo line is still at. Yeah. So many things that deal with cannibalism, it's in Inferred, right? You see the person get killed, you see the cannibal kind of sharpening the knives, and then it kind of cuts away to like a beautiful spread of food, you know? But rarely do you see how the sausage is made, I guess, for the lack of a better phrase. That's where I would be curious how far would a TV or a movie version of this go. I will say Eat the Rich does both. It does have both scenes where like you kind of see the cannibalism happening, but then also a lot of scenes of just the rich enjoying a fancy meal and it's kind of implied that like is the meat human question mark yeah there's an out of context art panel that made me laugh so hard i'm not gonna say in what issue it's in but it is a little bit of a spoiler let's skip ahead about 30 seconds if you don't want any spoilers whatsoever for ether uh there's a part where a toddler is eating someone's chopped off hand (laughs) and it's like fucking munching on the pinky or something yeah and it and the way it's drawn made me laugh so goddamn hard um because i pictured autumn doing that and like they are just so happy while they're doing it it was such a like oh i see where that what this book is doing now kind of moment yeah i dug it so much it was such a good read hell yeah yeah but that's all i got for recommendations this week so i guess let's move on to the main course wink wink nudge nudge (laughs) (laughs) dead boy summer hell yeah oh yeah we are gonna be doing zombie aka zombie 2 aka zombie flesh eaters aka every other weird fucking permutation that you can think of. An unofficial sequel to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead? Question yeah, mark? Yeah, question mark. Uh, so yeah, this is directed by Lucio Fulci. This was kind of his first actual full-blown jump into the horror genre. This movie came out in 1979 and it is about a woman and a reporter who are going down to a Caribbean island in search of her missing scientist father and then of course once they get down there they discover that the island is being overrun by voodoo zombies question mark and things get bad from there of course so yeah this is a sneak peek of what we'll be getting into oh yeah and by the way a zombie fights a shark ahoy there this is the harbor patrol anyone on board yes it looks abandoned That's just what we'd like to know. One more step and I'm gonna blast you. Now freeze where you are! Yes, it's my father's boat. And uh, how long since you last spoke to him? Well, we have to go to Matul. We're trying to locate Anne's father. She hasn't heard from him for some time. That's not a cool place to hit. Natives claim it's cursed. They avoid it like the plague. 
I'm going to tell everyone that you're the one who's crazy. A demented, cruel, evil son. What exactly did my father die of, Dr. Minow? And the boat's crew, what happened to them? What's this about the dead coming back to life again and having to be killed a second time? Islands, fantastic legends, voodooism, zombies. We've been right for centuries. Voodoo's just superstitious horseshoe. Well, whatever it is, it makes the dead stand up and walk. I've seen it with my own eyes. Father of my father always said, when the earth spit out the dead, they will come back to suck the blood from the living. They're coming back to life. They're everywhere. Guys, we're not kidding. Literally, a zombie and a shark fucking <laughs> do battle underwater. Yeah, obviously that's what this movie is known for <laughs> at the end of the day. But yeah, we'll we'll get to it. And somehow it doesn't seem that ridiculous in the context of the rest of the movie, like with everything that's going on. Because I thought they were just going to like table set us to get to that point. Yeah. The rest of the movie wasn't going to matter. All that was going to matter was this battle to the death between a zombie and a shark underwater. But it actually like it happens and it makes kind of sense in the context of the whole movie real quick Aaron though right at the top I liked this movie a lot um it has a lot of love in the horror community has a lot of uh love for people who are big giallo fans and Fulci fans is this movie though a little problematic in terms of taking advantage of a native people I know the Caribbean island is a fictional island right yeah so I would say this is definitely you know a little bit exploitative um it goes back to that good old trope of zombies being related to Haitian voodoo and some of the like weird race phobia stuff that goes along with that. Well, and even just a little bit of the scientists dismissal of some of the local populace. Sure. You shouldn't be doing this or like this island's cursed. We're all doomed. But at the same time, I feel like the portrayal as well as a little bit of that kind of, like you said, exploitative nature, like kind of over, over exaggeration. But yeah, I again, another Fulci movie, like just like a New York Ripper, like the whole time I felt a little uncomfortable watching it. Sure. I guess that's kind of the point. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that kind of goes with the territory with so much Italian horror to begin with. It's usually very transgressive and weird and just kind of off the beaten path stuff to begin with, especially. Especially since zombies are so kind of inextricably tied to American culture at this point, at least to us as Americans, right? Our notion of what zombies represent and how they've impacted our pop culture. So it is interesting to go to a different country and look at what zombies are for them, you know, and that's part of the reason why, you know, we picked this one as a companion. Like you said, we weren't necessarily planning initially on this being the companion movie but it makes complete sense for a variety of reasons even with that we were going to return to this movie down the line like it was on our list but we weren't necessarily going to do it for dead boy summer yeah and i think honestly i'm kind of glad that things worked out the way they did because 
this movie, I think, works very well from a conversation standpoint right now here, kind of in the middle of Dead Boy Summer and kind of what our overall conversation has been steering toward and some of the themes that we're digging into. So yeah, like I I think it totally makes sense as far as where things are. I I will say one of the things, while it does seem a bit transgressive and uncomfortable, I do dig, so horror newbies are off the bat, like this zombie design in this movie is like some of the most terrifying rad zombie like disgusting zombies yeah i've ever seen up to this point there's been a lot of just gray you know makeup caked on kind of thing you know like we were joking about in the dawn of the dead episode where the makeup is kind of corny and then to hop to this movie the next year where these are zombies that are putrefacted decaying as look fuck. like they are fucking melting nasty yeah right? have live bugs and worms coming out of them yeah and they're like eye sockets and shit even the people who are like more recently turned are covered in this weird film or like a fungus looking stuff on yeah. their faces the zombies look disgusting and horrifying again the zombies though like are really slow moving anyone who died in this movie is kind of a fucking noob but regardless the zombie design itself is really terrifying this movie is gory as fuck there is again another eyeball trauma scene where you watch somebody literally get impaled on a piece of wood through their eye and it's pretty cringeworthy you see zombies cannibalizing dead bodies at at some points and it's pretty fucking brutal but i would say that if you are looking for a zombie movie that has at least legitimately like creepy as fuck looking zombies this is a good one with it being a fulci movie it's extremely surreal i don't know if i would shy newbies away from this movie before the horror but rather be with it being like a fulci movie and maybe there's another one that might be a little bit better to start off with if you just kind of like never had watched any Italian horror or Fulci and then dove into Zombie 2 you'd kind of be like what the fuck is the pacing of this movie like everything feels slightly dream surreal has these moments of overacting and nightmare the dubbing is fucking ridiculous bad insane yeah the Fabio Frizzy score while I dug it 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 sounds like a Sega Genesis video game score which is part of the reason why I dug it but like I don't know if that's everybody's cup of tea but it, it doesn't have some of the complexity of a goblin score. Let's be real. Yeah. It doesn't have that jazzy prog rock kind of sophistication to it. It felt like he was using the sound chip from a Sega Genesis, even though this is like 10 years prior. Well, he was using something as influence, which I'll oh, get yeah. to in a little bit. I bet. But something that like, while it did feel a little dangerous and like uncomfortable from like a race and exploitation standpoint, going all the way back to what I wanted to say, one of the creepier moments one of the things that I dug is that while they kept referring to like someone's cursed asylum, this is the work of voodoo, you never see the perpetrator. Like there's never people like they never stumble across a cult or anything that's doing this. It's just inferred that because the scientists work on this island and what they did to the native land, just the voodoo is all around them. And whenever the zombies are approaching or like the force of the island itself, this dark force, you hear like the voodoo drums and the soundtrack actually like adds that to it there's a moment where a bunch of characters are running through the jungle trying to make it back to like the doctor scientist whatever shack like his makeshift clinic the drum beats are getting closer and as they get closer zombies literally 
start to rise out of the graves. That whole scene where they stumble across the graveyard of the conquistadors and like all their corpses come out of the graves was fucking awesome. I thought that was such a good concept and a good idea because of the sins of basically colonizers. They're now cursed to walk the earth as the dead. But like the thing is, this curse just fucks everybody over. Even the people who were already on the island as natives, no matter what, you're kind of screwed. It's not so much just targeting like the interlopers. And again, like we talked about with Campbell Holocaust, I wonder how self-aware this movie was in that like it does feel like it had to say like, huh, colonizers, we kind of ruin fucking everything, don't we? Yeah, (laughs) I could see there being a little bit of self-awareness there. I think there is more subconscious shit going on um just historically some of the stuff that was happening in italy around the time there was like a weird wave of xenophobia and anti-immigration and things like that that i think might have just been in the periphery of the people who were making the movie and i don't think it was explicitly their aim to like comment on that i think some of it just came out naturally because that's what was going on in italy and was in the media and the news a lot at the time yeah and even there was a, a lot of element of science gone wrong and a lot of could have not should have i i get what you're saying i think because we don't know explicitly what they were doing science wise right you just get the impression that this is a western doctor who is volunteering volunteering his skill in a third world country but of course he has this air of oh we westerners are smarter and more sophisticated and better than all of you and i have to be the like great white savior and come down here and take care of all of you because you can't do it yourselves it feels more like that than like we have a giant scientific scheme that we shouldn't be doing for whatever reason well i got that aspect of it for sure like again good intentions pave the road to hell i do think there were good intentions but at the same time the doctor scientist and then like the girl's father who was his partner it did feel very much like oh we stumbled across this phenomena of where people return from the dead let's figure this out and almost a little bit of like let's kind of experiment on it maybe to see what happens I just think they didn't really try and stop it from happening until it was too late and one of the more haunting moments in the movie and there are a couple scenes where this happens when they show shots of the village and it's just fucking animals and trash all around and there's fucking nobody around slowly throughout the movie you start like seeing one or two zombies walking around and then by the end it's the whole village is there and they're all zombified i really dug those shots but like it was very eerie to watch the moments where there's no one around where is everybody what the hell is happening and then like the zombies just kind of appearing like what happens to the doctor's wife the zombies just appearing at the house suddenly like that's pretty terrifying what happens sir yeah seemingly as a you know the danger you are scared of it so we're gonna come for you first kind of thing yeah yeah so yeah i mean as far as you know we're talking about should newbies check this out you know for any seasoned horror person like if you haven't seen this movie by now definitely check it out there is some wild gore in this the zombie versus shark scene is absolutely one of those amazing like how the fuck did they actually do do this and pull it off kind of thing and it was a real shark by the way yeah we are not fucking around that happened the person was in zombie makeup in the water with a real shark yeah totally you know i think some of the zombie shit in this is at least very unique and interesting and there's some very iconic looking zombies i mean just the fucking worm-eyed zombie that's the poster that on the poster yeah. that was on the vhs box just seeing that zombie all the time anytime i would 
go to the fucking video rental store. It's a creepy zombie, dude. Like, it's yeah. really fucked up. It would always get under my fucking skin. And that's one that I was like, so curious to watch. Like, that has got to be one of the most fucked up movies, man. Like, if they're going to put that kind of zombie on the very front of the box, that entire movie's got to be, like, the most insane thing. So, like, you know, if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen this, what are you doing? But for horror newbies, I mean, I would not say that this movie is the most scary thing in the world. No, uh uh-uh. But it is definitely gory. And it's brutal. It is definitely gross. It is definitely brutal. You know, this is not for the squeamish, I would say. But I don't think it is the most scary thing in the world. You're always going to be a little bit at arm's length in terms of scares when it comes to watching like older foreign movies that you know have the problem of the dubbing being goofy and the acting being over the top and some of the like oh this takes place in new york city and it's clearly rome and they just have coca-cola cans everywhere you know there's stuff where like the uncanniness of it is always going to kind of keep you at a place where you're always gonna not be fully into scared mode but you know again the content can be unsettling is what i would say you're not gonna watch a movie like this anywhere else i do agree with you that the design of the zombies are unlike any other kind of zombie design you'll see with it being fulci and an older italian zombie flick there is just this lens this feeling of surrealism throughout the entire thing that you don't really see too much in other horror movies and i think all of that is kind of worth it just to go and even if you don't necessarily like the movie itself just to watch something you've never seen before is definitely another reason to check this one out yeah for sure you know to kind of dig back into themes for a little bit before we talk about some production stuff you know i think the whole idea that this movie kind of takes the pork and nolos dose approach to like okay we're gonna have viral zombies where there is some kind of plague and sickness happening but then there's also the voodoo thing going on in the background that's at least interesting that it doesn't completely commit to one or the other of those things i think It's completely on purpose that this movie is set in the Caribbean and deals with some of the voodoo stuff. Like I mentioned, so zombies are definitely one of those things where, you know, we've talked about the inversion of the American nuclear family and society. We've talked about American consumerism at this point. This movie is kind of talking about the whole idea of zombies being this vehicle to remind us of injustice that were done in a prior time and error. Right. And, you know, in an American context, that often does go immediately back to like African slavery or the systemic genocide of First Nations people. Um, In this context, obviously, it's Italian. And I wanted to kind of dig into this and see, like, what the fuck was going on with Italy during this time period? Because, you know, I don't know much of anything of what was going on. You know, just it's not history we're taught. It's not, you know, news or culture we're taught. It's just whatever. What, What was happening? So to go back backwards a little bit during the 30s and 40s obviously that's where the fascist regime was in power they put into place these racial segregation laws and they were specifically geared toward preventing ethnic 
and cultural mixing. So it's a lot of the same reasons why, you know, the American segregation laws were put into place was just very much a like, we don't want you mixing with us. We don't want our blood and our culture being watered down in air quotes. We don't want to be replaced and taken over by these outside forces, right? And these other people. So, you know, this movie specifically describes voodoo as a combination of European Catholicism and African tribal ritual. Like, voodoo in this movie literally is the weird kind of abomination that happens when you combine, you know, the quote-unquote good, pure European culture and values and religion with the more primal, untethered African kind of culture and everything else, right? Even a little bit goes back to, in a more racist portrayal, but it kind of even goes back to nature being the devil's church. Yeah, right? to a degree, because it's it's very much about European white order and structure and society clashing with, like you said, primitive, earthly, wild culture. Like, it's those kind of two things smacking against each other. And so this whole idea that this tainted mixture of beliefs is what's responsible for the dead rising, right? Like, we gotta stop that. That has to be stopped. And I guess, too, Night of the Living Dead, by Romero's own admissions, is, like, so much about how we need to learn to put aside all that dumb shit. Yeah. And get past stuff like race and sex and orientation, etc., to, like, actually become a true community focused on the real enemies threatening to take us out. But that fear of multiculturalism and equality is what's actually kind of keeping us back. And that's what the modern, modern zombie metaphor really seems to be. The Walking Dead deals a lot with that. Some of the other movies that we're going to talk about this summer kind of deal with that as well. But that's kind of what was happening with Italy at this time. They opened the country up to immigration in the 70s. And so for the first time, Italy had more people coming in than they had people coming out. I didn't realize it took that long post-World War II for them to do that. Yes, and I mean, Italy obviously is like in the middle of the Mediterranean. They had a lot of people immigrating from North Africa and the Middle East. So there was very much this, you know, oh, these hordes of these foreigners are coming into our country and they're just here to like take all of our jobs and resources and our women and our jobs and blah, 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 and just all of that xenophobia and racist shit. And so, you know, I'm not saying again that the writers and Fulci necessarily like explicitly wanted to state all that, you know, because just judging from other things that Fulci has been involved with, I would say that's probably not the case. You know, he's done a lot of transgressive shit, but I've never quite gotten that vibe from anything of his and any statements I've ever heard. But I think this is just a case of that stuff being in the zeitgeist in Italy, and it just kind of bled into this movie in a weird way. Well, and I think when you watch it, Fulci didn't really intend for any of that. I think he just kind and it was just like, I want to make my zombie movie, <laughs> like, period. Basically, like, yes. I want to make my yeah. zombie movie. I kind of want to make it like this. Yeah. It very much felt like all of that was just a vehicle for him to make a zombie movie. And like, that wasn't yeah. really, he wasn't really thinking about 
that kind of stuff necessarily. You're right. It is there. And to the point where there is a line that someone says, I think it's the doctor, maybe someone explains it to another character that voodoo is a combination of like Catholicism and yeah, the native yeah, religion. That's, that's what I was saying. So yeah, it kind of becomes this weird thing of that mixing of cultures. That line has been crossed and now that's causing this calamity to happen. So we have to stop that. Yeah, there is definitely that subtext there. If that's how you choose to read it. Now, another way that you could read the whole thing is these zombies again are this past and this colonial history and these people who have been oppressed coming back to get their revenge on the white fairly comfortable colonists right so you can kind of look at it either way if you choose to i guess like if you're gonna pull a little bit of death of the author you know you could probably pull what you want from this movie and choose to see it either way pretty evenly i think i do think the zombies are treated in many ways as punishment for sins of the past yeah i don't think that the movie shies away from that either i think it's an all of the above situation but i do think the movie more kind of leans towards maybe like it being a punishment for what's going on on the island but then like i stated earlier it seems like this dark force quote unquote voodoo force of nature is targeting everybody it's not just the colonists or just the people who are coming to the island it's fucking up the entire island but yeah again like you you have that whole scene where like literally the conquistadors are rising from their graves and you you have to wonder if this is your punishment for what you did in the past to this island yeah so to kind of get into i guess the production and explain where the fuck this movie came from how did it get here seriously because i i am very curious as to like why they were saying this was a sequel to dawn of the dead yeah so just follow me along and and this will all make sense as we're going through it little by little so producer Fabrizio DeAngelis caught wind that his fellow Italian filmmaker Dario Argento was working with George Romero to produce the long-awaited sequel to Night of the Living Dead. DeAngelis wanted to preemptively capitalize on that hype and the potential success of this new Romero film, and he was like, fuck it, yeah, let's get our own zombie project into production, because that happens all the time. What a cutthroat business movie making is, even not just in Hollywood either. Oh, and and Grindhouse filmmaking has always been that way. Grindhouse filmmaking has always been, oh, there's a shark movie that's about to come out? Cool, let's put out nine of our own shark movies and try to beat them to the box office, you know? That has always been a thing with exploitation movies, that whatever the current hit is, you can bet by the end of that year you're going to have nine other rip-off movies in theaters already. So... Enzo Castellari was originally offered to direct the movie, but he felt horror was not at all in his wheelhouse. He had mostly been doing spaghetti westerns like One Dollar Too Many, Kill Them All and Come Back Alone, Kioma, or he had been doing Poliziotteschi, police detective crime movies like Cold Eyes of Fear, High Crime, Street Law, and then later he would get into post-apocalypse action stuff, kind of riffing on Road Warrior, right? So he would do yeah. like 1990, The Bronx Warriors, and then the new barbarians and escape from the Bronx. So he was just like, nah, horror's not my bag, but why don't you go with Fulci? And Fulci was also D'Angelo's second choice anyway, because he had liked Fulci's work on the 
psychic and don't torture a duckling both of which again are kind of more giallo mysteries with a little bit of maybe some horror undertones but this was definitely going to be Fulci's first full-blown horror movie the writer Dardano Sacchetti was chosen to write the screenplay he had already worked with Fulci previously on the psychic he had worked with Argento on Cat of Nine Tales and he had worked with Mario Bava on Bay of Blood and Shock so like he had already worked with all of the main dudes in Italian horror already and he would go on to work with Fulci on the Gates of Hell trilogy the New York Ripper which weird that you brought that up and mentioned it written by the same guy who wrote this one well and I remember what I was reading like about him that screenwriter I was reading too specifically for this movie because this movie very much is the trope of an evil island yeah and he was of course influenced by the island of Dr. Moreau and and then like there were other zombie movies including one that was literally called Voodoo Island yes when he wrote the screenplay for this so yeah Johnny Quest and Venture Brothers even like spoof tropes we don't see too often nowadays of people go to an island and some fucked up shit's happening on this island that they don't know about until they get there it's an interesting trope seems like it can again sometimes be problematic yeah well it was very much born out of that 18th 19th century kind of adventures on the high yeah, seas exactly. look at these fucking like weird exotic cultures very much that kind of bullshit where they think they're being swashbuckling but all they're doing is being horribly kind racist. of being racist yeah, yeah. so yeah it, he started writing the screenplay in July of 78 and like I said the original story was titled Nightmare Island and it was much more of like an action adventure <laughs> kind of thing it was literally called Nightmare it Island it was literally called Nightmare okay. Island yeah it yeah. was influenced by a lot of the old voodoo roots of zombie culture stuff like I walked with a zombie and white zombie right so you know it's interesting that this movie 100% is like yo those are the influences I want to pull from when Romero with the first night of the living dead was like I don't want to go that direction at all whatsoever yeah so this is kind of the opposite side of that coin initially okay so here we are July of 78 Dario Argento just to kind of back up and let's talk about where we were with the last movie we discussed on the show Dawn of the Dead. So, just as a recap, Dario Argento helped George Romero secure international financing to make Dawn of the Dead. In exchange, Argento would get the right to re-edit the movie for European distribution. That cut of the movie was shorter, it was more fast-paced, it cut out a lot of the, like, humor stuff, it had a full-blown score by Argento's go-to prog rock band Goblin that I mentioned a second ago, and that cut of the movie was released in Italy in September of 78 under the title Zombie, and Zombie with an I, right? Okay. The U.S. cut of Dawn of the Dead wouldn't actually release until the following spring. I think it came out in April of 79. Both versions of the movie were huge financial hits. Once DeAngelis' company, Variety Films, optioned the Nightmare Island script in December of 78, they immediately reworked it into the movie that we have now and added the opening and closing scenes in New York. So that was originally never part of the story, but they added that as a way to kind of tie it back to the Romero movies, right? Ultimately, Sachetti would completely take his name off the script. 
He gave his wife, Elsa Braganti, sole screenwriting credit. Weirdly enough, his father passed away around that time, and he just felt it would be disrespectful to keep his name on this script that was about dead people coming back from the dead. Yeah. So the movie filmed during June, July of 1979 in Italy. They also filmed in the Dominican Republic, and then again, they added the New York stuff at the last minute, which that was actually Fulci's first time shooting in the U.S. at all. You know, he didn't know anything about permits apparently so like most of the new york city stuff was just shot guerrilla style it did feel a little guerrilla like the parts that i guess were legit in new york yeah some of the harbor cops were actual off-duty police officers and they just brought their own uniforms you know so like sure okay one of the other producers of the movie ugo tucci he's the one that came up with the whole shark versus zombie scene specifically to capitalize on the jaws craze say producer i say hero yeah (laughs) Cinema hero. Yeah. So like I mentioned a second ago, anytime that there is like some big blockbuster hit, there's going to be a ton of ripoffs. So this was totally just like a, we need to have a shark in this movie. So here we go. Here's your fucking Jaws scene. And Fulci didn't want it in the movie. So he was like, fine, fuck you. Went to Mexico, shot those scenes completely separately. He had the movie's makeup and effects guy, Giannetto De Rossi, go with him to Ila Mujeres, Mexico. And they filmed the scenes down there. So they filmed it with, like you said, a real tiger shark and a local shark trainer named Ramon Bravo, who played the zombie. I I knew it. They had to have gotten like some animal handler for that. Yes. He was like an actual shark trainer. And the shark itself was fed beforehand and sedated. They like drugged the fucking shark to do those scenes. The makeup guy did up this shark trainer as the zombie. Props to the makeup guy because, like, the makeup stays on underwater, like, the whole time. And it looks really eerie. I really dig the look of the underwater zombie in this. Like, yep. It's really eerie and unsettling. And I love the way that just he kind of floats, his hair floats, his clothing floats. And I love how he does just kind of blend in with the rocks and the like, you know, other stuff that's down there until he pops out. Like that's a really great reveal. Yeah, and that reveal actually is kind of one of the closest things we get to a jump scare in this movie because it's yeah, it is very sudden and it's pretty terrifying. Did they actually have Aretta? gay the person who plays susan there in those scenes because she looked like she was in the water at some points with the at least the shark handler i did not find any information about whether or not that was actually her in those particular scenes yeah so i'm not sure she could have gone with them and filmed some stuff but i have not come across any information that said yes or no i mean i highly doubt it they might have had a double or something do it yeah so Gianetta de rossi would later work on full cheese the beyond which we've covered on the show. He also did The House by the Cemetery. And then he worked on Dune, Conan the Destroyer, Rambo 3, Dragonheart, Stallone's Daylight, and The Man in the Iron Mask. I guess just to, like, throw her book out again, Heather Wixon's book about all the makeup guys, there is a whole chapter where she talks to him. So there's there's a whole segment of that book where she's interviewing him about all these different movies. So yeah, we mentioned already, too, Fulci's go-to composer Fabio Frizzi did the score. This was the first of many of his horror scores, so this was also a new genre to him. So here's where this gets kind of weird. Like I mentioned, he heavily heavily borrows the main theme of this score and i'll add some 
clips in here so that people can actually hear the breakdown. So let's step sideways to another Italian director real quick. Oh boy. Luigi Cozzi, who I have mentioned before, he directed Star Crash, Contamination, the Hercules movies, and Paganini Horror, which is one that I've brought up on the show. He bought the distribution rights for an old print of the original 1954 Godzilla movie. He re-edited the movie, colorized it, and created a new score by remixing the original score. film came out in 77 and it's commonly known as Cozilla because it's just a play on his name Luigi Cozy. Frizzy based the main theme of this movie by riffing on the main theme from Italian Godzilla. of itself again was a remix of the song prayer for peace from the original 1954 godzilla ripoffs all the way down baby <laughs> yeah so if you think about it they're like like of this fucking movie score it's basically the same exact thing from the fucking godzilla movies going all, all the way back to like why it's called zombie 2 and like them trying to cash in on that i was reading that fulci apparently didn't have knowledge of that correct of them including the two and wasn't very happy with it and that's actually exactly what i was about to get into so i took that weird little side tangent 
to talk about fucking Italian Godzilla and the music being a ripoff, specifically to say Italian copyright law is fucking bananas, okay? So apparently any movie can legally be marketed as a sequel to any other movie. That's the whole deal. It's just you could be like, cool, I made this fucking movie. I'm going to call it Star Wars 2. And you can do that. Is it still like that to this day? I don't know if it's still like that to this day. I can't see people getting away with that, of like doing that with like no. a Disney movie. No, exactly. Yeah. Not, not in a day and age where like IP is like such a big deal. So anyway, DeAngelis decided, fuck it. We're going to call this movie Zombie 2. And we're going to explicitly market it as the sequel to Romero's fucking Dawn of the Dead, the European Argento cut of it, which was called Zombie. Which more honestly makes it a prequel if we're supposed to assume that the zombie plague that we see in the Romero movies began in this film's epilogue as all the zombies are making their way from the Caribbean on the boat and then the final last amazing shot of all of them on the Brooklyn Bridge heading towards Manhattan, right? Yeah. So what a fucking weird thing. And like you said, Fulci eventually discovered that the film was being distributed as this faux sequel to the Romero movie movie and he was frustrated as hell because he had no way to challenge that and he had no way to like claim more ownership and say like this is my movie yeah he was second choice on the project so yeah he like wanted this to be his thing and they were like nah this is just this weird knockoff sequel to dawn of the dead i mean in retrospect now we do know it's its own thing yes now it is very much a fulci movie dude italian audiences back in the day in the 70s and 80s must have been confused as fuck yeah <laughs> like they get all these like movies from other countries that are big hits and then like all these italian directors will just pump out these quote-unquote sequels which are not at all sequels yeah it kind of depends i guess on what country you're in all said and done and what series of movies you're actually keeping up with i mean to us it seems fucking ludicrous but to the italians i mean they just had zombie and so, okay, if the next year this movie comes out and it is Zombie 2, you probably would just assume that that is what it is, you know? And it's just the next one in line. And if you're not paying attention to, like, all the other details... But, I mean, what about Star Wars, though? I'm sure there were Italian sequels to Star Wars Episode 4, but then you have Empire Strikes Back come out years later. You know, what then? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, because there were certainly movies that were titled Jaw, 2 and had nothing to do with the original Jaws. You know, I mean, some of my favorites... To kind of give you a wider idea, I'm, I'm talking about some other sequels to this in a minute, but fucking Bruno Mattei is one of those Italian directors that has done so much ripoff shit that honestly I kind of fucking love. <laughs> he did this movie called Robo War, which was actually just a Predator ripoff. He did a movie called Shocking Dark, aka Terminator 2, which was actually just a ripoff of Aliens. And then he did a movie called Cruel Jaws, which used footage from jaws like actual direct footage ripped from jaws and the theme from star wars in the score (laughs) 
They like have that fucking Star Wars theme as the three dudes are in the fucking boat going off to catch Jaws. Cruel Jaws, sorry. It's the most inextricable thing when all of a sudden that Star Wars music cranks on and you're like, wait, what? Dude, Cruel Jaws <laughs> came out in 1995. Like, not even yes. that long ago. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But I, I do love that, like, he had the wherewithal and the balls to not just rip off Jaws, but add cruel in front of it. No. Yes. Our Jaws is cruel. Cruel Jaws. Dude, I looked up Shocking Dark. It's called Terminator 2. Yes. And it has just the Terminator poster. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I have the, like, limited edition Severn release of that that actually has the slipcover for Terminator 2, and it's just a buff guy with a robot face, and it just says, Terminator 2 on it. And I guess to pull the curtain back a little bit, a movie that you and I are absolutely gonna do a giggle flicks on, and I've honestly just been kind of waiting because I've been really hoping that they put this movie out on Blu-ray eventually, but there's probably so many rights issues they can't. There is a movie called Lady Terminator, which is one of the most amazing rip-off movies I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> it is basically a, like, beat-for-beat beat remake of Terminator set in the Philippines, but then there's this added layer of of like, oh, this ancient magic Filipino queen evil lady pulls a snake dagger from her vagina and curses her, like, granddaughter. And so then it fast-forwards years later, and then she just turns into, like, Terminator. And it's all the same beats of Terminator from that point on. There are so many of those movies where, man, how did y'all get away with this shit? And it just boils down to the fact that Italian copyright law is ludicrous. Mockbusters. That's what yes. this genre of film is called, Mockbuster. So anyway, yeah, ultimately, this movie came out in Italy in late August of 1979. They started writing the script to this movie in July of 78, and the movie is coming out in August of 79. It went worldwide the next year under a gajillion titles. Like I mentioned in the States, it was just zombie. In the UK, it was zombie flesh eaters. It had a bunch of different titles depending on where it was released. Oh, and I, I was reading that UK immediately immediately made it video nasty and like banned the fuck yes. out of it. So the BBFC was like, yo, we want you to cut about two minutes in order to get an X rating. And then later that year, when it was put out on a home video, they were immediately like, oh yeah, no, this is going video nasty <laughs> because Vipco that released it put out the like strong uncut version. And so immediately they were like, cool. So this is banned. <laughs> Do you know what two minutes they wanted out? It was like two minutes cumulatively. Oh, it was like all okay. these small little bitty cuts, but it was about two minutes worth. In 2005, that uncut release would be released by Anchor Bay and would pass with an 18 rating with no cuts being involved. Like, that's how much things have shifted over the years, is that they could literally release the same exact uncut version in 2005, and the, the BBFC would literally just be like, yeah, cool, no big, it gets an 18 now. Yeah. But yeah, like, ultimately, this movie was a bigger fucking financial success overseas Seas than Dawn of the Dead. Wow. This movie made roughly $12.8 million in today's money off of a $1.7 million budget. So it was hugely successful overseas. There were all kinds of dumb marketing stunts like 
they handed out barf bags in theaters, which is something that Cannibal Ferox, a movie we had just recently talked about, did that. Hadn't movies been doing that a little bit to the up to this point? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, Blood Feast did it. Some other William Castle movies did it. Like I just mentioned, Cannibal Ferox did it. Hell, I just bought the Criterion Blu-ray of John Waters' Pink Flamingos, and it comes with a barf bag <laughs> that is stamped with pink phlegm mingos. That's fantastic but uh i know i i mean it also sucks as a romero fan but like i do kind of find endearing that the producers basically tried to rip off dawn of the dead and like sure. say this is a sequel and then went on at least globally to do better than dawn of the dead that's kind of like a smack in the face i feel like for romero. no not globally globally dawn of the dead still ate its fucking lunch okay okay just gotcha. overseas overseas gotcha like yeah. in italy zombie 2 was a bigger hit than zombie 1 that yeah. makes more sense okay yeah that makes a lot more sense but but still i get what you're saying on one hand like yeah that sucks for romero that somebody else is just piggybacking on his work on the other hand, kind of like I just said, literally everybody was doing the same exact thing. Yeah, and there is there is something so like tongue-in-cheek and endearing about Mockbusters shamelessly ripping off and then being successful at it. Yeah. Kind of to jump off of something you said earlier, with the budget being um, what it was and what it made back. Something I got, and this is the same thing I, I got when we watched Cannibal Holocaust, and I, I don't know if this is just a thing with Italian horror in general. It looks like it would have been miserable to shoot, at least for the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for everybody involved, especially the actors. They don't look like they're having a good time. They're all sweating all the time. They look legitimately miserable in so, so many scenes. Yeah, this movie shot in the fucking Caribbean. This movie shot in the Dominican Republic in the middle of summer. They could have picked a better time of the year, yeah. but they were clearly racing the clock trying to get this movie out very quickly on the coattails of Dawn of the Dead, for sure. For it being a zombie horror movie, and I actually kind of enjoyed this, most of this movie takes place during the day. Yeah, you're right. Shit hits the fan at night when they have nowhere else to go and they're stuck in the church. I liked all that, but like most of it happens during the day with them like basically trampsing around the jungle the whole time. Yeah. But everyone looks miserable in this movie. Like it's sweaty, flies are everywhere. It doesn't look like a pleasant time on set. Yeah, not at all. As far as the cast goes, you know, as per usual with a lot of these Italian films of this era, uh, half the cast were native English speakers. It's a mix of some British actors and American actors. Uh, and the other half only spoke Italian and everybody was dubbed at the end of the day anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so Peter is kind of the main lead character. He is played by Ian McCulloch. He was in a pandemic post-apocalypse series that was big in Italy called Survivors. Um, he was also in The Ghoul, Zombie Holocaust, Contamination, lots of TV stuff. Anne is played by Tissa Farrow, who is Mia Farrow's sister, weirdly enough. As many times I've seen this movie, I did not actually know that fact until I was looking it up just now. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't I didn't catch that either. She yeah. again is looking for her like missing scientist father who was on this island and his boat washes back up in the harbor in New York. And that's kind of where there is like this interesting giallo kind of thread through the whole thing. Because so many giallo movies are that it's somebody's father their teacher their like favorite professor their mentor yeah it starts off like a mystery disappears yeah 
and their, again, student or their child has to go off and look for them, and they're usually paired up with some kind of, you know, sleazy detective or a sleazy reporter or a sleazy writer or something like that. So it kind of has this weird initial giallo kind of thing to it. Go into, like, more of the weird giallo, like, unrealistic nature of things. Apparently, this boat, all the way from the Caribbean, yeah, drifted all the way, all up, to the way up to the Hudson Bay and, like, was in the yep. middle of New York City. Yep, got all the way up there. No problems. Just washed right on in. Also, very inexplicably, Tissafero meets the Ian McCulloch character, and then five minutes later, they're literally making out on the bed in the boat. So, you know, just here we go right away, random stranger. Let's hook up. On my missing father's boat where a dead fucking zombie person was just shot earlier today by the police. Killed another police officer. Yeah. Yeah. Which I do love because it does pay off at the uh, epilogue scene at the very end of the movie. Yeah. I do like that they don't leave you hanging with when they show the corpse kind of starting to move of the dead police officer. And then you realize, too, that the zombie that they shot, they didn't headshot it and it just fell into the water that it was still alive. So, like, that's kind of also implying that's what causes the outbreak at the epilogue happening in New York City. Yeah. Yeah, Tissafero was in, some call it Loving, Fingers, Search and Destroy, Manhattan, The Last Hunter, and another fucking batshit horror movie, Anthropophagus. So she was not in nearly the same caliber of movies that her sister was, uh, but she also did not act for as long. So she had a much different career path, it seems. Dr. Menard, who is kind of the main figure that is on the island, he is played by Richard Johnson. Uh, He had a huge TV background. He was also in The Haunting and Beyond the Door, which is an Italian exorcist ripoff. I added Beyond the Door to our list of movies to do eventually. Gotcha. I am very curious about that movie. He was in The Great Alligator, which was, again, a Jaws ripoff movie, The Monster Club, and then fast forward, he's in Lara Croft Tomb Raider. 2001, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he is in Scoop, so he is the second person in this cast that has been in a fucking Woody Allen movie. And then the boy in the striped pajamas. It looked like he was working all the way until he died. Yeah. I actually have a fun fact about him specifically. He married multiple times, and he had four children, and one of his children is named Jervis Johnson. Jervis is a tabletop game designer uh, who's been working for like several decades now and it worked on Warhammer, but he actually created the fantasy football tabletop game Blood Bowl. What? That's interesting. Yeah, which is a pretty popular tabletop game in a lot of game stores. So yeah, he's the son of this actor. So yeah, when Peter and Anne get to the island, they meet up with Brian and Susan, who are two tourists, essentially, who are taking like a month-long kind of sailing island-hopping trip. Al Cliver plays Brian. He was in several of the Emmanuel movies. Really? Okay. Yeah, he was in some Jess Franco stuff, so he definitely has a prior career and some softcore weirdness. Oh, quick aside, Worst Idea of All Time podcast, one of their most recent seasons, they went through the entire Emmanuel franchise. Yeah, so they definitely covered a couple. 
couple that this guy had been in. And then he would go on to be in Fulci's The Black Cat, The Beyond, Murder Rock, and Demonia. Aretta Gay, we mentioned earlier, she plays Susan. She was really not in much. She's in something called Brillantina Rock and Ombre, neither of which I have seen. Olga Carlados plays Dr. Menard's wife, Mrs. Menard. She doesn't really have a name beyond that. She was in Kioma, Blood and Diamonds, Murder Rock, Once Upon a Time in America, and fucking Purple Rain. So, like, what a weird fucking career for her. Um, obviously, she's the woman who gets the giant splinter in the eye which that's the other big memorable thing from this movie is the zombie that pulls her face onto the giant splinter yeah, and pops her eyeball out. Two of the more gory scenes in this movie involve her. The scene where like her eyeball gets gouged out, which they show the whole fucking thing. They don't shy away from. Yeah. And then when they later stumble into the home finally and find her being eaten alive by all the zombies being cannibalized, it's also pretty uh, rough. But to be lewd for a second, I know we had talked about on the return of the Living Dead, how like Linnea Quigley's strip scene made you a man. I feel like if I had watched Zombie Zombie 2 when I was a teenager, I feel like between Olga and Aretta Gay's characters, I, I feel like between the two of them, they would have made me a man. <laughs> so I definitely remember seeing this movie on cable TV growing up, and they just always had her nudity kind of blurred out. And it was one of those things where underwater you couldn't quite tell, like, is that on purpose or is are they blurring it out you couldn't tell like whether or not it was tv editing or if it was just stylistically something that was going on but then yeah like later in life when i saw this movie i was like oh she is basically wearing a fucking napkin on a string and literally nothing yeah, else not even a thong like yeah g-string only and scuba gear topless yeah and you can tell it's 100 a bullshit male gaze thing because oh, there's yeah. no way that all of that scuba gear didn't just chafe the shit out of her. And, then, and right? then there's a whole shower scene with Olga's character before she gets murdered. Yeah, and not just shower scene, but shower scene with her in the foreground and then like a three-way vanity mirror in the background just to make sure that you can see her like butt, bush, and tits all at the same time. Yeah, like, yeah so the movie is definitely like very male gazy in that way. No one hangs dong either, unfortunate. Yeah, no no dicks in this movie. So it's definitely not equal opportunity in that sense. You know, kind of going back, I guess, to a little bit of the, like, underlying themes and metaphors in the movie. The scene where Susan is getting geared up to go scuba diving, right? It's a very interesting moment where, you know, she is just like, hey, I'm going to go scuba diving and then proceeds to like take off all of her clothes, put on all of her ridiculous scuba gear and like sit on the edge of the boat with her tits out, spitting in her goggles and putting them on and getting all of her tanks adjusted. Meanwhile, the rest of the cast is just kind of sitting there and they're all staring at her. Uh. And it is this weird moment of all of them being transfixed and, you know, it's not just just that she's hot and naked but there's also this exoticism to her i don't know if she is maybe just very italian like dark skin dark hair or if she is meant to be maybe mixed race of some type or whatever i don't know like i couldn't quite tell if it was like a weird attempt at like black or brown face or if the actress maybe is actually part hispanic or something i don't know but the movie is playing up the fact that she is very much some kind of exotic 
to them, you know, so it's not just like tits out. Well, interestingly enough, the other actress who gets nude, she's Greek. Sure. Hourly appearance wise, she's not nearly as other exotic, but sure. it is interesting that the two people that are getting butt ass naked are that. Yeah, and, and at least with Susan specifically, there seems to be more going on in that moment, especially since Anne explicitly kind of turns and looks at Peter, and Peter kind of has that moment of uh, he like shrugs and looks at her and is like, eh, "What do you want me to say? Beautiful woman with tits? How am I not gonna look?" <laughs> it kind of comes off that way. It does kind of. It's like, "Ah, eh, you caught me." <laughs> you can also kind of read it as both of them looking at each other with this like huh haven't seen that before kind of thing you know or maybe him just kind of shrugging it off and saying like uh different people do things differently i don't know what to tell you and there is seemingly something more going on in that scene that i can't quite put my finger on because i don't really know how were they intending that scene to be read but it's more than just ooh va va voom there's some nips out you know the way i've read it and i've only this is just one view is i feel like brian and susan and the two people on the boat are very much more adventurous people and comfortable. Oh, well, yeah, definitely. They're not as square as Peter and Anne, for sure. The point where even with sexuality and nudity, they're like that. There's never any scenes where we see them having sex or anything like that. But sure. I feel like they wouldn't be opposed to having a four-way. Let's leave it at that. And I don't think they're trying to do that to like send a proposition their way. Brian and Susan would be, yes. Yes, yeah. But I think Brian and Susan would be are more open with their sexuality and relationship. Yes. And the other two are very like, mm, we're just regular people from New York City. We yeah. don't know about all this, right? But like they clearly like live on the boat together. Yeah. She even says to Brian. Brian, very matter of a fact, I'm going to dive here. And it, it seems like she's done this before multiple times. Yeah. Basically getting naked and then putting on Scooby gear and going. And Brian's like, all right, cool. Yeah. Like take some nice pictures, basically. Yeah. But there does seem to be some kind of commentary on like her exoticism and how, again, this movie is kind of playing on some of these white people colonizers versus the natives of this island kind of stuff back and forth. There just seems to be a little more going on there. Like I said, I can't quite quite put my finger on it. Yeah. So anyway, the last couple of people in the cast, Lucas, who is Dr. Menard's kind of go-to guy, he is played by Dakar, who was an Argentinian wrestler and musician. And hilariously enough, because for the past two or three episodes, we've both been kind of making fun of each other about fucking Federico Fellini movies. Dakar was actually in a couple of Fellini movies. He was in Juliet of the Spirits and Satira con so yeah that guy i don't know some mexican guy made some movies uh yeah frederico fellini who was an italian director weirdly enough he was in concord affair 79 which was one of reguero diodato's movies again the director of cannibal holocaust yeah. along with Ottaviano delacqua who was the guy who played the worm-eyed zombie he was also in that movie dakar was also in zombie holocaust and ator the fighting eagle directed by joe D'Amato. I only put this in here because I'm going to make fun of this person's name. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, Anne's father is uncredited, but he is played by Ugo Baloney. <laughs> His name is obviously Ugo Bologna. Ugo Bologna, but it's definitely. What are we fucking? Are we twelve years old? <laughs> his his name is definitely Ugo Bologna. 
<laughs> Mine is not so fucking funny. <laughs> I, yeah, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, just Ugo Baloney. So several of the uh, zombies, they kind of use the same handful of extras over and over. Four of the zombies are brothers. Okay. There are yeah. four Delacqua brothers. Alberto... Arnaldo, Roberto, and Ottaviano. So yeah, all four of them were in this movie, and apparently there have been some criticisms of like all the zombies look alike in this movie. Well, four of them actually were brothers, and they played multiple zombies apparently. See, but it's interesting because I thought that was a bigger problem with Dawn of the Dead. This movie, the zombies felt more... Uh, maybe I was just like kind of blown away about the zombies in this movie yeah. that I didn't really pay attention to it. I see how you can get that impression from Dawn of the Dead because you're literally dealing with a few hundred extras over the course of that movie. Yeah. But it's the 70s, so it's just a lot of people in V-neck t-shirts and bell bottoms with big hair and mustaches. You know, it's just like a lot of people who generally look similar. Well, and it's, it's also like Romero's weird thing with everyone has a one gimmick. Like, you have the nun zombie, yeah. you have the construction worker zombie, you have the cheerleader. Yeah. So some of them stand out a little bit more than others, for sure. Otherwise, they all kind of look the same, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, anyway, that's basically all the cast. But yeah, like, as far as other things in the movie, I fucking love how this movie opens. No fucking around, just insane what the fuck are we looking at scene, and then, like, smash the title. Zombie. <laughs> just, like, people you don't know who's talking, and then someone who's, like, wrapped up in blankets starts rising out of the bed and gets fucking blasted in the head. Yeah. Now they could go on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> All the stuff that got shot in New York Harbor. Again, I keep saying it like over and over. I fucking love stuff that's filmed in New York during the 70s, early 80s, during this time period where it's really gross, old, dirty New York. You know, we don't get into like downtown New York necessarily, but like there's something about the instant production value that you get filming on the New York Harbor. And it was very common for these kind of exploitation movies to shoot exteriors in New York just to kind of have that scope. And then they would immediately just go and shoot everything on sound stages or cheap ass countries right they did the same exact thing with the beyond where they like shot just some basic stuff in new orleans and the rest <laughs> of it was like filmed in rome cannibal holocaust shot just the like exteriors in new york and then everything else filmed in rome i'm guessing like the morgue scene in new york is still rome that's probably fucking rome yeah yeah, yeah. well another thing too with again the the knockoff nature of this movie i was reading too with it being zombie 2 there was even a line that was written originally for dawn of the dead that was given in this movie and i couldn't find what line that was and i wanted to ask you if you knew oh i have no idea i'm sure there was definitely a play on when there's no longer room in hell the dead will rise to the earth or whatever yeah there's definitely like a play on that in this movie for sure but i you know otherwise i'm not exactly sure if there was like something more specific from the marketing or whatever Right. Apparently, the actor who plays the fat zombie from the boat at the beginning, he just walked into CBGB's in full makeup and nobody fucking paid attention. With all the other punks, with all their crazy clothing and makeup and hair <laughs> and everything, great. just nobody fucking paid attention to this dude and his zombie makeup. You mentioned the ridiculous dubbing earlier. Yes, oh my lord. I think the most insane case comes right at the beginning and it's the fucking newspaper 
paper editor. Yes. Everything of his is like way off, right? Christ. And him and the cops too, man. The newspaper editor is Lucio Fulci. That makes sense. Okay. I didn't realize <laughs> yeah. that. I didn't realize he, he made a cameo. Yep. I will say Brian's dubbing was pretty rough too. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> in this movie. Yeah, sometimes you would have, usually the English speaking actors would dub themselves. But then obviously you've got somebody completely different. You have a dubbing artist that does the voice for the non-English speaking characters. And those are usually always the people who have it the worst as far as their dubbing is concerned, for sure. Old JFK Airport looks dope as fuck. Yeah. All that part of JFK has apparently been completely renovated and no longer looks like that, but all the big giant arches and the weird sunken lounge with all the red leather couches and furniture and shit, that's the dopest looking airport I've ever seen. (laughs) And I just got done flying and being in and out of several airports and none of them looked that cool or comfortable. I always like that moment in any movie where a person's face suddenly drops when they're asked about taking someone to a fucked up island or town or village or whatever like there's always that moment of yeah we were wondering if you could take us to Somerville and then the guy in the horse and buggy is just like Somerville why would you ever want to go there and just like (laughs) has that moment of suspicion you know like the same exact thing in this movie they're like yeah can you take us to Matul and they're just like uh uh sure we don't know about that well you don't want to go down that road yeah exactly (laughs) sometimes dead is better. Dead's better. <laughs> I fucking love the underwater segments in this. Dude, it is some of the better water segments I think I've seen in a movie. It really just feels ethereal in a yeah. really creepy way. And and it's not the tits, obviously. It's not the shark stuff. There's just something about old Jacques Cousteau weird nature documentary look and feel of all the underwater yeah. stuff that I really love. Like I really love that old aesthetic of National Geographic. All the colors are kind of warm and oversaturated and there's that little bit of film grain to everything but I just, I love that old look. I I really like that aesthetic and all the underwater scenes and shit in this have that to the nth degree. So I really, really dig all that. Again, the zombie versus shark scene is fucking incredible. You can tell there's no trickery. It's a real dude, a real shark. It's not a dummy. It's not a puppet shark. Shark. Like, it's nuts. The only time I feel like there was trickery is like when the zombie's biting the shark and like takes chunks out of it. Because yeah. then there are a couple shots where you'll see it, a chunk be bitten out of the shark and like blood's going everywhere. But it was clearly the guy had it in his mouth to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. But then like the cut goes back to the actual shark swimming around after that. No blood or like cuts or yeah, on shark's or anything. Fine. Yeah, shark's fine. But like, I mean, there's no other way around that. I felt like well, in yeah. this movie, they did it as practically as they could. I mean, they literally had a shark trainer yeah think about obviously if you're a zombie you're not feeling pain so it's not like the shit hurts you or anything but like sharks have fucking sandpaper skin so imagine just you trying to gnaw onto something that has sandpaper skin (laughs) just how much that would fuck up your mouth well so the other thing i want to talk about and i did joke about this earlier in the episode but like the idea of if you got killed by these zombies you're kind of a fucking noob yeah and these (laughs) zombies are even 
less dangerous, I felt like, than Dawn of the Dead zombies, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, there's a lot of conveniently the only way you died was because you like literally stood still for like 30 and, seconds. Like, yeah. Shook in fear for 45 <laughs> seconds while they were walking towards you. But like I, I will say also too, I I think part of it was that the zombies themselves, with it being kind of more at least inferred that it's supernatural, zombies did kind of just appear yeah. in many instances. It did treat them a little bit like they're a force of nature. So like if you're gonna go that route, that at least makes it a little bit more believable. Yeah. But that whole scene where they're like in the church clinic and the zombies are all entering through the front and they throw firebombs knowing it's gonna just burn down the church. Yeah. <laughs> and granted, I guess their plan the whole time was to escape through the back, but it didn't really feel like that. It just felt like they were just like, oh shit, we're surrounded, even though they weren't. And it's like, oh shit, there's so yeah. many zombies, even though they're just shuffling slowly and like running into shit. They just start throwing Molotov cocktails in this wooden yeah. church. The only moment where there's truly an earned, oh shit, you're fucked moment is when the one busts through the window and grabs that person. Yeah. That is a moment of like, oh shit, they got you. And yeah, speaking of the zombies again, I love how genuinely fucking grotesque they are. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love that dried, cracked look that's kind of similar to like the damned undead that we see in like the Beyond and House by the Cemetery. That simultaneous dry and juicy look is kind of a weird combo. Yeah. Because they look like they're all kind of dried out husk, caked mud, kind of mummy zombies. But then as soon as they get shot in the head or, you know, get their head splatted open with a cemetery cross, it's just just pure juicy like fresh blood <laughs> inside of them still you know it's not like they're all dried out and just caked brown dried out blood nope just tons of fresh juicy blood in this weird dried out husk of a zombie so that's like a weird combo again even the fresher corpses though look a little disgusting like they have a yeast infection on their skin yeah. almost it looks like and they're just dripping somehow still too yeah they look feverish and diseased and i mean i think more modern zombie takes obviously do but like of the classic stuff we've covered so far, not many of them really do that. I mean, Return of the Living Dead is more just batshit insane kind of zombie awesome makeup. And this is more like grotesque, rotting, liquid putrefaction yeah. kind of zombie style. All of these zombies look like they're fucking melting. Well, and it would make sense with the Caribbean climate. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. With it being so humid and the constant tropical rain and everything. Yes, 100 makes sense that they would just be like... And worms everywhere it's like zombies that were left in a slow cooker they just got instantly gross and mushy cool so as per usual <laughs> like i said I, I didn't have a whole lot of recommendations for this episode because i was busy fucking digging into all the stupid sequels to this movie <laughs> okay so there are sequels all right yes lay it on me now the complicated thing is like i said depending on the country <laughs> okay and depending on how these <laughs> movies are titled there were several movies that were considered sequels in some countries that weren't considered sequels in other countries. Iced, okay. So the ones that I'm going to specifically talk about are the ones that are considered sequels in America. So in the actual American series, Zombie, this is three, four, five. So again, we're going on the assumption that this is the first movie, but it's actually the second movie. Again, we, we've already talked about how convoluted this shit is. So these are all available 
from Severin, first of all. You can buy every single one of these on Blu-ray. Zombie 3, as of right now, was only available to rent on Amazon, but Zombie 4 and 5 are both on Tubi for free, and I know for sure I've seen them on Shudder before. So these are probably going to be fairly easy to find if you feel like you want to dig into them. So to get started, Fulci began working on Zombie 3, which came out in 1988, ultimately. Okay, I didn't realize he was even attached to anything related to the series yeah he was gonna make another one and he stepped away after having several disputes with the producers some people have chalked it up to health issues it could have been both no idea like what the truth is there per se but apparently he shot 70 minutes oh, wow. of film over okay. six weeks. And ultimately all of that was edited down to only 50 minutes. And the producers were like, well, shit, we can't release this. So after Fulci stepped away, they took about the half or so that he had directed. And they handed it over to Bruno Mattei, who I mentioned earlier, and Claudio Fergasso, who that's a whole other weird sidetrack thing. Anyway, those two guys completed the film. Claudio Fergasso, I already mentioned Bruno Mattei making like all the other weird ripoff movies. Claudio Fergasso made Beyond Darkness, aka La Casa 4. And so another <laughs> weird instance of movies getting retitled in other countries. Evil Dead was released in Italy as La Casa. So there was Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, La Casa 1 and 2, and then there's six more sequels in the La Casa series that actually don't have anything to do with the Evil Dead movies. Oh my god. (laughs) So this guy directed the fourth entry in that series called Beyond Darkness. He also directed a Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff called Night Killer, which I've mentioned on a previous episode, and most... Famously, he is the director of Troll 2. That's where I knew this name from. Okay. Yep. Yes. So this third movie is a weird turn because it focuses more explicitly on a virus. So it's not a sequel to the story of Zombie 2. Nope. (laughs) Not at all. So this is totally about a weird viral thing that escapes a lab in the Philippines. So this one is all shot in the Philippines on the cheap. The zombies are mostly dudes wearing big baggy burlap clothes and it looks like the same eight guys over and over and over. Just like the same eight stunt guys wearing various makeup over and over and over and it's this weird group of military dudes who bump into these teenage girls they are all trying to survive this weird zombie outbreak on this island meanwhile the main doctor guy that was working on this virus is trying to stop it yeah it's kind of goofy and ridiculous is it as exploitative transgressive as zombie no not nearly it is still exploitative in the sense that it's overly gory and violent and ridiculous but it never quite feels transgressive in the same way. So Fergasso would go on to direct Zombie 4, a.k.a. After Death from 1989. This one also filmed in the Philippines, but again... This one doesn't follow the same story, and it switches to, again, an entirely supernatural voodoo tale about cursed caves and magic necklaces. Honestly, I know you won't know what this is necessarily because you haven't seen these movies yet, but this feels way more like an entry in the Demons series than it feels like a zombie movie. The design of the handful of lead, again, zombies in air quotes, look way more like demons from the Demons series. They act more like 
like demons from the demon series. They seem to be more self-aware, conscious, you know what I mean? They're not just shambling, not opening their eyes or looking forward kind of zombies like in this movie that we've been talking about. This is a group of Vietnam vets who all end up on this island where these scientists were killed 20 years ago trying to stop a voodoo curse. So it's just one by one, all these Vietnam dudes getting taken out, but also kicking ass and shooting up all these zombies and everything else. Lots of, oh yeah, back when we were in the shit, in Nam, things were never this bad. <laughs> Just a lot of that goofy, like, no, my brother, kind of bullshit. It ain't me. It ain't me. Yeah. I ain't no Exactly. <laughs> Fortunate son intensifies. Yeah. And then, finally, the last movie, Zombie 5, a.k.a. Killing Birds. Here's just the wiki description. Fred Brown returns from the Vietnam War to find his wife in bed with her lover and slaughters the whole family, sparing the newborn son. After the massacre, he is attacked and blinded by a falcon. Twenty years later, a group of students, led by Steve and Anne, meet Brown and begin their search for a nearly extinct breed of woodpecker and come across grisly occurrences, including boys being killed by vengeful zombies. That's the fucking Wikipedia synopsis for this goddamn movie. <laughs> so when you first said it, I thought for sure it was going to be about zombie birds. Yeah, like bird damage yeah, and shit. It made me think of in Shit's Creek, Moira in the later seasons gets cast in like this Bosnian film called The Crows Have Eyes 3 The Crowening. <laughs> and, like, it just made me think of that movie. Uh, <laughs> I still have not watched that show yet, and that sounds fucking hilarious. Oh, dude, Shit's Creek is amazing, but yes, it happens in like the later, and might maybe even the last season. Yeah, there's like four <laughs> layers of jokes yes. in that fake title. That's yeah. great. Yeah, and it's just the idea of once again a weird sequel being shot in a, a random country that might be questionable. Yeah, exactly. So. <sighs> The other two were watchable. This one was honestly a fucking chore. I have seen so many goddamn movies. I have sat through so many long movies. I have sat through so many interminable movies. I have sat through so many esoteric, I don't know what's going on movies. Rarely is a movie this fucking slow, yet short, just incredibly inept, nothing connects to anything, yet at the same time, I was like, where is this going? And I just kept watching out of curiosity. So, this film actually came out only a month after after Zombie 3. But again, this was marketed as an entry in the Zombie series upon its home video release. This was originally a movie just called Killing Birds, and later they slapped the Zombie 5 on it to include it in the series. <laughs> I just still love that it was shot in fucking Thibodeau, Louisiana. Yes, and that's, that's what I'm getting to. So, it's also unclear to this day who actually directed this fucking movie, but again, it's awful. So, the film not only was shot in Thibodeau and Homa and New Orleans, but it takes place there too. It's actually students that are at Loyola and they're going out into fucking Thibodeau and Homa. And what's fucking hilarious is whenever they go out into, you know, the countryside, instantly the audio quality goes to shit. All the audio just sounds like this. Hey, where are we going? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we need to go to that house over there. All the audio sounds like that. 
And then also imagine a giant heavy layer of fucking cicadas just screaming yeah. in the background all the time. Yeah. Everywhere. Just that constant like. Depending rah, on rah, what rah, time rah. of the day and season, what season it is, it can be loud as fuck yeah. in Louisiana. We're in luck. It's a house. Let's hope it's not a gingerbread house. Everything's a joke you in so it was hilarious to me that they didn't try to like actually dub like this is a movie where they should have dubbed all the dialogue because the dialogue that they captured on the day of shooting is like unintelligible because it's so fucking loud yeah I, I did a quick wiki of this and like I'm looking under the filming and like yeah it was no overdubbing at all and yeah also the film crew was only like eight to nine people what the fuck oh this seems like an incredibly cheap production trust me like the student film this was a garbage movie again it's another one of those where like you can tell exactly which people in the cast were italian and exactly which people in the cast were like local new orleans actors the main fucking guy in this movie is 100 percent just hey my name is dale and i'm from new orleans louisiana i'm a student at loyola in this movie and i'm going to find this woodpecker that we don't want to be extinct that's exactly how all of his dialogue is delivered in this movie. And yet, a handful of the characters, like, the other main female character in this movie is still somehow very Italian, and yet working at, like, a U.S. newspaper, sure. The film is fucking 91 minutes with credits. Nothing zombie-related happens until 68 minutes in. <laughs> oh, God. This felt more like a really shitty ripoff to The Prowler, which, if you've seen The Prowler, you'll understand what I'm saying. But this movie had jack shit all to do with zombies, and then when it suddenly did decide in the last 10 minutes it wanted to have something to do with zombies, then it was like, wait, where did these zombies come from? And there's, like, no explanation for it, really. Yes, it's supposed to be the, like, vengeful spirits of the guy's family that he murdered years before, and they're coming back to get their revenge. But, like, why are they coming back to get their revenge on these students and not him? You know, like, there's just these weird, inextricable things that it felt like they rewrote this movie four different times while they were making the movie. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what happened, considering nobody can pinpoint who the actual director of this movie was. So, yeah, this was a fucking chore to a degree, but I just kept watching because, again, it was all shot in fucking Louisiana, near where you grew up and, like, right around the corner from where I've lived. So it was just a weird, what are they doing here kind of thing. So, yeah, you mentioned that there were a lot of unofficial sequels based on read. So I looked yes. up again. This is just a quick wiki that I did while you were right after you mentioned that. And it's just the Wikipedia for zombie, the film series. And they actually do it by certain regions. So the Italian series yes. only goes up to Zombie 3. They only include Dawn of the Dead, a.k.a. Zombie, Zombie 2, the movie we this episode is covering, and Zombie 3. The British series is where it was retitled Zombie Flesh Eaters, but that only includes 2, 3, and After Death. The German series, also just called Zombie, does include Dawn of the Dead. Zombie 2 is actually Romero's Day of the Dead. And then it skips to Zombie 3, Zombie with just an I, 3. 
after death. So that's the German yeah. series. The Thai series has zombie two, three after death and killing birds. So just like the American series, the Australian series is where shit gets a little weird because then like they have zombie four bacterian zombie five vengeance zombie six the mirage zombie seven last rites zombie eight urban decay bacterian was originally called panic vengeance was originally called vengeance of the zombies the mirage was originally called dawn of the mummy last rites was originally called night of the seagulls and night of the seagulls is also in its own weird trilogy called The Blind Dead. Yeah. It has a completely other separate series of shit. Yeah. So get this, like the original releases for like those other movies. Zombie 4 Bacterian came out in 82. Zombie 5 Vengeance came out in 73. I guess that's when Vengeance of the yeah. Zombies came out. The Mirage, which is Dawn of the Mummy, came out in 81. Last Rites. They're all over the fucking the map. Yeah. 75. And then the US. So we have, you know, Zombie 2, 3, After Death and Killing Birds, right? But then there were a bunch of unrelated titles that were released in the 1990s by like something called Eddie Entertainment or T to Z Video, which I think was just kind of like a bootlegging like VHS, I guess, thing. Their zombie shit is all over the place too because they have Zombie 3 Return of the Zombies, which is actually just The Hanging Woman, which was originally a Spanish movie from 73. That's a Paul Nashy movie. Okay, yes. yeah. A Virgin Among the Living Dead from 73, which was originally Christina. A zombie 5 Revenge of the House of Usher. 1982 was just the Spanish revenge in the House of Usher and the words Zombie 5 were added to the video box only and not included in the film print. I think a few of these are Paul Nashy movies. It sounds like these are all either Paul Nashy or Jess Franco movies. The last two I said were Jess Franco. Then you had Zombie 6 Monster Hunter from 81, which the original title was Absurd, which itself is a pseudonym sequel to Joe DeMonto's Anthropophagus. Anthropophagus. That's what I mentioned earlier that Tissafero was also but then later. you have then you have zombie seven from 1980 which is anthropophagus Yes. A.K.A. the Grim Reaper. Yeah, Anthropophagus is fucking wild, and that movie is known for, like, this one scene where this weird cannibal monster guy cuts open his own guts and, like, eats his own intestines. Sure. Yeah, and then they, (laughs) again, on this Wikipedia article, again, this is the zombie film series, then they have another category called Other Films, where it's, like, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which was released as Zombie 3, Zombie Holocaust, which was also released as Zombie 3, Nightmare City, which was released as Zombie 3. Oasis of Zombies aka The Abyss of the Living Dead was released as Zombie 6. Hell of the Living Dead was also released as Zombie 4 and Zombie 5 Ultimate Nightmare. Burial Ground was released as Zombie 3. Panic was released as Zombie 4 in Greece. This is an interesting tidbit. Polgasari from 1985 is a North Korean film which was released in Pakistan as Zombie the Communist. <laughs> no, no, get this. Zombie the Communist Bull Monster is the name that was used. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, so like, and there's a couple more on here. I'm not going to name them all, but like, yeah, just what the fuck this franchise? Yeah, it's convoluted as shit. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. Just, okay. But yes, I would just say, just watch Zombie with an I2, aka Zombie, Lucio Fulci's Italian film, and leave it at that. Don't even, don't <laughs> even bother with the others. Yeah. And also watch Romero's movies as well, Romero's zombie movies as well. Yeah. Totally. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> this movie, <laughs> Zombie, is currently available in both Blu-ray and 4K from Blue Underground. As of right now, you can check it out on Shudder. 
via streaming. That's where I watched it. Yeah, I watched it on Shutter, and I'm guessing it's the Blu-ray cut because it looked great. Yeah, and keep checking Shutter, obviously, because our episodes maybe come out anywhere from two weeks to a month after we record them. But I noticed I got on Shutter again recently and looked at a lot of the stuff they had just added. There's a ton of movies that we have covered over the last several months that when we covered them at the time, they were not really available on streaming anywhere. But now they're just on Shutter. So, like, if you skip some episodes of ours because you can't find the movie, like, keep checking Shutter fairly often because they keep adding shit. But Zombie has been on there since always. You can often find it on Amazon and Tubi as well. So this movie is fairly easy to find. And then again, like I said, there's a fucking amazing 4K disc of this from Blue Underground that's also readily available. So... Definitely, definitely give this one a watch if you want to get into something a little more gross and extreme and exploitative. Despite the nudity, actually, there's not really any sexual violence. Yeah, there's not the same level of sexual violence. There's just some booby ogling. And then violent death. Yeah, (laughs) this movie is definitely super fun, at least just to watch the, like, zombie versus shark scenes and all the zombies rising from the grave scenes and just some of the kills are fucking wild. So definitely give this one a spin. We will be jumping back into Romero territory on our next episode. Obviously, we are going to be covering Day of the Dead from 1985 for our first August episode. So we will have that coming at you soon. We're going to have an awesome guest on that episode as well. Then we will continue our Dead Boy Summer series and get into some more zombie chomp chomp territory. So cool. All right. Well, I guess that is is going to be it for this week's episode of watch if you dare a horror movie podcast with me your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host derek in which we discuss horror movies from all ages and subgenres, and dissect the fears and phobias and discuss how accessible they are for horror junkies and horror newbies alike as always you can download all of our episodes on any podcatcher of your choice at this point please rate review subscribe etc specifically on apple podcasts Podbean, Podchaser as well. So you can find all of our episodes there. As always, our social media is at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. We have our Spotify music playlist pinned to our Twitter feed as well. Definitely check that out. That is just a collection of spoopy doopy songs from various movies that we have covered over the last couple of years, as well as just some regular music with horror vibes to it. So that is available for you to enjoy all year round. Speaking of music, uh, my little brother Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator, provided the bumps for us the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes. Big thanks to him. And as always, you can check his music out on Bandcamp, at Party Gator, at Opossums, at Big Clown, at all the other groups that he has spun off there. So check him out. Yeah, I just bought a uh, vinyl uh, Opossums record off their Bandcamp. So even if by the time this comes out, that's sold out you can still buy their stuff digitally on Bandcamp, and it's a name your price kind of thing so yep yeah get some good music support jesse uh he does a lot of good shit yep and with that said do we have any final thoughts by the way i did bring this up while we were recording aaron uh they couldn't stop traffic on the brooklyn bridge when they were shooting that final shot of the movie yeah nope couldn't get that shot sorry podcast can leave now tell the sally the opening line of the movie, y'all. <laughs> Go watch the movie.